welcome to the Business of Property podcast. I'm Simon. I'm Stuart. We're both property people running our own businesses. This podcast is just us chatting, as we often do, about anything and everything property. Last week, we were, well, rather, I was doing a lot of talking about how I'm currently looking at getting started on a, a new property investment. So it's not not the start of my property investment journey, but it is the start of a, a, a new property investment for me at the moment. And this week, we're going to talk in a sort of complete contrast at the other end of the, the process, because Stuart, you're still, if I can put that in without sounding too depressing, trying to sell some of your properties. And you've also added a, an extra one into the mix as well. So I think you're, you're glutton for punishment, really, at the moment. So where would you like to start talking uh, about the, the properties you're selling? Maybe the new one. How about we start with the, the new one that's up for sale? What, what's that and, and why are you selling it? Yeah, so we've added a seven bed. In fact, we put it on the market, I think, shortly before des- the end of December. So it's been on uh, a short while. And that is a seven bed professional let. It's fully let. And it's actually a good it's a good income earner, actually. So the question you've asked is what, why sell it is a good one. And I think a lot of people would ask that. So it's the four. So we're actually selling four properties right now, which, as you say, makes me feel like a glutton for punishment. But the seven bed we are selling, it's a really simple equation that we need the equity out of that property. So as you know, we do refinance most, if not all, of our properties to unlock as much capital as we can. And this one was no different. But because we've we've done some work to it, because it's fully tenanted, it's it's a good price. It is, I would say, being sold for approximately fifteen percent more than we bought it for, and we we completed the purchase, I believe, in twenty seventeen. So that's not a bad that's not a bad return. Yeah, for for the sales, and of course we've had the the income from that. You're you're selling this to or to presumably you are trying to sell this to investors because. It's a seven-bed HMO in an Article 4 area. I think most of your properties are, so I assume it is. Yep. Okay, so you it's probably too big a property to sell to uh, non-investors, uh, as is. It's got a lot of inherent value in it because it's a fully licensed and set-up HMO in an Article 4 area. Did you think that actually makes it more valuable to sell at this point than if it was just a big single dwelling? Yeah, the first thing I would say from my perspective, if I was going to sell this back into the residential market, I would I would probably do that myself, as in empty the property out, let the property empty, then reconfigure, refurbish so that it was a residential because I think if someone was coming into the market for that size of property, not not ever, not never going to happen, but unlikely that someone would come in with with that in mind to do. Particularly as you've said, it's in the area that these are in. Obviously, you can imagine there's there's other co living stroke HMOs in that in that area. What was <laughs> I was going to answer the question? I've got one. Well, uh, it's, it's interesting that you've forgotten the question because I think I actually phrased it exceptionally badly. What I was trying to ask was, what do you think is the difference in value to if you were selling it as an empty single dwelling compared to selling it as you are with tenants as a uh, a fully set up HMO investment in an Article 4 area? 
I've often heard it said that the quality of the question determines the quality of the answer, but I'm not going to throw that all on your <laughs> lap. I'm going to accept some responsibility on that as well. Well, no, I mean, but, uh, talking a little bit about sort of behind the scenes of how we put this together, I, I definitely think you're you're the stronger interviewer out of the, the pair of us. I, uh, I I waffle lots and, and go on about stuff and, and forget what I'm saying. You're you're far far better at being the the, the structured speaker <laughs> so anyway i'll let you get back to it now you've probably forgotten your question again <laughs> <laughs> that's why i like you Simon. always got the compliment thank you so that is actually a really good question and it's one that i haven't looked at properly because because we never considered taking the taking the tenants out of the property it's it's fully let it didn't make sense but your assumptions are, are actually really spot on because because it's an article four in fact, I've looked at the Article 4 direction map for Plymouth, and I think I can say that most of Plymouth is under Article 4, if not, if not all of the area that you would ever want to have a, a co-living property in. You, 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 can't, you can't go outside of it. So that actually does add a premium to properties that have existing licences. So that is, that is 100% true. I think the market has changed a bit though. So there is that premium. So if a, if a property already has the HMO license, if it's already tenanted, I think there is a premium on that. But my view of the market is that that has still declined over the last couple of years because there is a, there is a saturation. I don't want to get into too many of the market uh, economics of this, but I think we've talked about it before. We have an oversupply of property compared to the the demand of the property that we have in that area now. So that I think there's a little bit of a balance that, that's happening. That all said, I, you know, we're still quite happy with the price that we've put it on the market for, slightly lower than than we wanted, but the asking price is very close to what we're we're looking for. So as we record this, I haven't accepted the offer, but we're we're probably we're probably very close. But to answer the question properly, if it were a residential property, in the right street, I would expect similar or potentially more. But this particular street that this property is in is not the sort of street I would expect someone to pick as a residential road. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Or, or, or someone that, that had a family that wanted that type of property. Although it's in a good central location, I think there's a fair amount of work to be done to get it to where I'd want. My other properties, I've got a few properties in another street. Again, I haven't re- examined the the true difference but it is something that I had been thinking about because of the massive oversupply of co-living properties. And I call them co-living purely because HMO is a, is a council term and I, I just don't think they're the most creative people in the world and it doesn't really describe the, the property well. But in another street, I, I think there is definitely a worth looking at whether or not we can refurbish properties back to a good degree, but I'm just not sure the difference in in, in asking price is worth the amount of investment from my side to to do that. But I think there's probably a strategy there for someone that, that wishes to do it. Hopefully that did answer the question. If this property was set up as a single dwelling, how big would it be? What, what How many bedrooms would it typically have? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly large property. It's, it's got at least four floors. And I say at least because I, I haven't been there for a while, but the kitchen the second kitchen is on a mezzanine floor. So as we've kind of alluded to, it's it's in a street with other properties of that style with probably five or more bedrooms with five, you know, more than five people staying in them. So 
it's unlikely people with families would want to stay in this particular property. And just thinking about the property itself, of the bedrooms, you've probably got the ground floor would actually be a, rather than a bedroom or two bedrooms would be a, a dining area. So I imagine realistically, you're looking at a four stroke five bed, but it would need a lot of work to reconfigure it back to something resembling how you'd want to live as a as a family. You mentioned a second kitchen. So clearly that, for starters, is unusual in a family home. So that would need to, to come out. And as you say, you've got to re- reconfigure bedrooms back to dining rooms or what have you. And then, yeah, you've got a four or five bedroom house. It's, it's, yeah, it's definitely sort of bigger family market. And yeah, if, if all of their neighbours are houses split up into individual room dwellings in there, yes, I think, think that would be a, a, a difficult sale, that one. Yeah, I wouldn't usually trust the kids with their with their own kitchen. To be fair, they're not they're not of the age where I'd let them have their own. <laughs> Being under twelve, yeah. Although uh, 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 we've, uh, we've got a, a twelve and a fourteen year old, and and they have actually started cooking us dinner. That's brilliant! Wow, that is really good. It's not entirely unsupervised, and sometimes by the time we sit down to eat. We don't actually have any cutlery left because they've used it all in the preparation. <laughs> but apart from those those minor hitches, it's it's just a, a welcome development. So uh, yes, but anyway, we've wandered a little bit from <laughs> from property. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it when I bought the property, it was already a seven bed. It was an empty seven bed, but I looked at it and thought about where we could go with it if things didn't go so well. And my view would have been that we'd split it into flats because it was already kind of split that way because in the basement level, you've got a bathroom, which we've done quite nicely, and uh, two bedrooms down there. And then you've got a, a, a lounge as well. And then we've got a couple of bedrooms on the on the ground floor. Then you've got kitchen on the mezzanine and then a couple more bedrooms. And then you go up into what is a loft space, but it's a very big loft space, head height for a bedroom. So like I say, it's one of those where even if it were on the right street, as in someone would want to live there. And, and the other thing from, from my perspective is the other properties we've got are are very nice in terms of curb appeal. They're good Victorian, good aesthetics, if you like. This one, not so much. So I, I think there's you know too many factors that would have prohibited it being or going back to residential. I, th- I think it's probably been that way for, for some time. And, and as you said, you, you know, that street is will be lots of students, lots of mixed houses. So probably not somewhere you're going to go to if you've got a, a young family. Yeah. So I, I think sort of the conclusion here is converting it back to a single dwelling would be expensive and would probably actually reduce its value on the market. So yeah, probably best not to do that. Yeah. My next question is selling it with tenants versus emptying it and then selling it without tenants, but still as a an HMO co-living investment property. Have you did you weigh up those those two options? I mean, obviously, given given the situation with evictions right now, obviously that that would play into that calculation. But yeah, what were your thoughts on those two? To be entirely honest, when I put this on the market just before Christmas, I just wanted to see what the market would be like for for this particular property so i i had no intention of of removing any tenants or serving notice and as you've said and as we've talked about on this podcast you 
you, you know, you're looking at six months and on, on another property we're selling, we do have that challenge, by the way. But on this one, and in this area, again, I haven't thought about this prior to to this podcast, but my view on this particular investment area of, of in and around Plymouth is that a lot of people, not not all, but a lot of people will be investing from outside of the area. And if we think about Plymouth as a destination, it's it's not like Leeds or Manchester or, or those other destinations that are oft spoke about where actually you can probably get to them in a couple of hours, you know, given the given the right tailwinds and the right transport. They're they're they're, they're better, I, I guess, um, investment areas for people that that want to that are looking for lower cost investment. Let's just say that Plymouth, on the other hand, is is not quite the same because obviously it depends where you're coming from, but it's it's not as easily. Basically, the infrastructure from other cities isn't as good as it is in the rest of the country, essentially. So if you're, if you're coming from anywhere outside of the southwest, even from Bristol, you're looking at a couple of hours to get into the town. And so the point I'm making here is that a lot of people that are investing that are out of town are standard investors. In fact, this one you'll like. I had an offer on this only two days ago where someone offered almost the asking price but didn't want to view the property. And, and said, this is my offer. It's my first and final. And yeah, do you want to take it? And and the estate agent has been very, very good about it, obviously relayed that and their concerns. And, and my, my riposte to that was, to be honest, I'd just be really uncomfortable selling it to someone that hadn't even looked around it because my view, and it'd be interesting to hear yours, but my view of, of someone that hasn't even looked around a property what is the propensity for that sale to actually complete? Because there are so many things that would come up. And if you've never even wanted to, to understand about the property, I just think the, that the risk is much higher that that, that, uh, that that sale would fall through. Perhaps they're just looking at it uh, as the numbers. And if they're, if they're actually that detached from the investment, that they aren't too worried about the property itself. I wonder if perhaps that would make it a, a a better sale prospect, because they they aren't going to worry about the details so much. I wouldn't have thought. So a surveyor will go around and assuming they say it's okay, then they're just going to say that's fine. That the numbers work, and yes, we've got a budget set aside for repairs or refurbishment although it's got 10 cents it probably doesn't even need refurbishing and they they can just play it as a a a real sort of financial investment without any attachment to the property or or concern about the property itself so i wonder if that might indicate that they're actually a larger purchaser and hence more secure in their offer yeah it could well be and uh, the truth is we had a we had a better offer come through on the same day, so we didn't need to consider it. Uh, I had my concerns, but the point I was making to your question was that in, in this area, and it might be the same in others, but that, that was my thinking is that we get a lot of people really that are just looking at those numbers. They're not as interested in coming up and touching the walls or walking around like we might if we were going to make those same investors. So they are just looking at the at the at the yields and the yields are good. So to your point about the consideration of 
tenanted or not tenanted. For me, it, it was offered as a fully tenanted investment vehicle because when you look at the even when you look at the net yields, it's one of those I look at and I go, wow, that is pretty good. I should probably keep this for the longer term. But assuming you're going to then ask me, so just remind us why you're going to sell that property. It is because I have taken external funds, investor funds to to buy properties. So we have obviously several, given that we are selling four, where I have taken investor funds and we are paying that investor interest because, as we said before, they, they, do, they want something in return, strangely enough. And the, the interest payments do put a lot of, uh, I think we call it technically downward pressure on the cash flow, but essentially it's cost, it's expense. So the interest expense is coming out of the business. And what I did was, which was quite technical for me, I actually modeled a forecast of my property business, both with and without this property. And really interesting for me, and I did this on a 24-month period from, from this month, which took me some time, took, took a lot of numbers. But hypothetically, what it showed me was that, yes, the top line revenues would decrease because this property generates around, uh, it would be around the, the 34K mark per annum. So obviously top line revenue, which, which for me is, is, is definitely vanity. But taking the costs out, the cost of the interest that, that, that I would save as a result of having sold the property, the cost of the mortgage, in fact, the two mortgages, the, the existing mortgage and the further borrowing, the cost of all of the expenses all attached to that one property, although the, the top line goes down and, of course, the profit decreases because of that, overall, my, the property business, the, the, the profit percentage, the net profit percentage has increased over that time. And that's kind of what I'm looking to do. And this is a much longer conversation that we, we can have another time. But when thinking about the property business, my, my mistakes have been very, because I've been very short termist. And this is why, probably why some of these things are happening now. But I thought it was just quite interesting aside to talk about that. That was the rationale. Actually, when I modeled it, the business looks a little bit healthier. Yes, we're making less money, but actually the profits increased. So just to explain it, although the profits increased, uh, decreased from this property, because we've taken so much cost out, we're not losing as much. It's, it's not as straightforward. So that, that therefore, for me, made it a good business decision. Yeah, that opens up lots of lots and lots of other questions that um, we need to put in another episode. <laughs> we, need to, <laughs> we, we need to look at sort of tactics for property business growth and effectively the costs that can come with that growth or, or certain tactics of growth. And, uh, and I know we've, we've got different approaches to that and, and our thinking on it has evolved as well um, over time. So yes, we, we definitely need to come back to that. But for today, seeing as we're talking about selling properties, I think we should just have a, and we're nearly out of time, we should have a little recap on where your other three properties are that, that are for sale. So do you have offers on any of the others? Are any of them progressing? Or So the good news is, yeah, the, the three out of four have offers that have been accepted. Congratulations. So let's thank you. I'm going to rip the plaster off and just say, so the, the Croydon flat that we refurbished, we've spoken about before, this is the one with the EWS one. That is back on the market, but we are trying to solve some of the problems around the EWS one. We won't get into that here, but it, that's going to be a, a bit of a longer burn 
and forced a few uncomfortable conversations. But so that is on the market. But really, we don't want to sell it just yet. We want to hopefully get the the EWS one survey done so that we can get a little bit closer to market value and possibly, hopefully, make a little bit of money on that property, which currently we're not. So that's that's that one. We then have a one-bed flat in the southwest, which we are sold. That is with a current tenant. And we've had challenges with this particular tenant. And we had I had good dialogue uh, with the tenant up until the point where I've phoned her, again, wanting to be transparent. Even though I have a letting agent, I thought I'm going to phone the tenant directly, let the tenant know that uh, we are going to sell. We've had it accepted and it's bad news for her, I appreciate. But if we can just come to a, an informal agreement uh, and if if they would let me know how long they wanted to move out, uh, that didn't happen. The The tenant then went MIA and despite calls and texts, no longer responds. So unfortunately, I had to serve the notice, but we've covered that off that we are looking at least well, we're looking at about six months. I'm hopeful that we can we can sort something out. But that, that property is selling. And then the studio flat, we also have, a, a, I think, a pretty close to cash buyer on that as well. And that's going through. So I think they're trying to push it through for the end of March. That happened a little while ago. So given that they are cash buyers, I think the survey's done. We're just waiting for some uh, for a management pack because it is a lease property. But so mostly good news in terms of the acceptances, but we've been here before. So we we treat uh, defeat and victory as the same imposters. We wait till contracts are exchanged and then we and then we take it as read. It sounds optimistic trying to complete by the end of March. I, was, I can't remember where I saw it, but I saw a stat recently that currently the average completion time is 134 days. So I mean, that's nearly five months. So if you had a, an offer, even at the beginning of this year, the end of March is obviously only three months. So, so you're, I think, yeah, ambitious. But if they can do it, then then great. It is ambitious. To, to be fair, from our side, when obviously we don't have any, well, we, we do have some interest in it because if we sell it before the end of March, it falls into the last tax year. And anyone, well, and certainly you know all about CGT recently. So if if that could go into last year, that would be great because obviously we, we, we're selling two properties personally. The one bed flat isn't making huge amounts of money. So I, I'm not overly concerned. So if it did fall into next tax year, I'm not that bothered. But it just changes how we approach things in the next tax year if, if that doesn't happen. And if you can spread your CGT between two tax years and you get two lumps of tax allowance. So. Yeah, correct. And and because because we own the properties in personal names, we each get an allowance. So we we try and obviously want to push the sale into last year. The, the 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 buyer is cash. I think they've done things rapidly. We've spoken with the solicitor. He said that they are gunning for it. But as you know, we'll uh, we shall wait and see. Well, good luck. Um, I hope uh, hope you have a bit more success on those sales this time round. Because thank you. At least one, one of those properties has been been here before. So. Yes. If it goes better yeah. this time. And with that, relatively good news of three properties with offers and and hopefully progressing and only one left unsold i think it's probably time to uh, to finish up for today so thank you very much to everyone who's been listening 
we really do uh, appreciate you you getting in touch and letting us know what you think so please do visit the website and fill in the, the contact form if you if you wish or leave us a, a rating and review we're always very happy to read those as well and until next week you can find show notes at thebusinessofproperty.com. Yeah.